0: Here we are. Uh, thanks for that. And now we are here. We're joined by Jim Ross, uh, one of the, the great minds in the world of, of professional wrestling, sports entertainment, any, any label you want to assign to it. Uh, we're here with with J.R. How you doing today, sir?
1: I am very good. Thank you for that compliment. I think being a great mind in pro wrestling is akin to being the skinniest kid at fat camp. <laughs> so, uh, I am, uh, but I am. I'm happy to join you, fellas, and, and uh, thanks for having me on.
0: Oh, uh, th- thank you for for being here. Uh, now you're out there on the road fair amount, so this is actually you're you're coming to our area pretty soon here. Uh, Saturday, March 28th, 1 p.m. at the Rock Bar Theater in San Jose. Uh, what do people expect uh, out of uh, ringside an afternoon with Jim Ross?
1: Uproarious entertainment. A show for the ages. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, uh, It's a, I do a little bit of, I got in the wrestling business in 74 when I was a young kid right out of college, and it was a much different time. The world's a different time. Uh, Media was different. Everything was, it kept evolving, evolving. So I tell some stories from from my career, 40-year career. Most of them are are attempts to be funny. Uh, Some are poignant. And then I I do that for 20 or 30 minutes, depending on what kind of role we will get on. And uh, and uh, if I see anybody nodding off, I cut the show short. <laughs> but the, then we go to a uh, unfiltered, no hose barred question and answer session with the audience. And the and the audience that we'll see in San Jose on uh, the Saturday before WrestleMania will be very uh, eclectic. It'll be there'll be fans there from all over the world, and that's not. A, a hyperbowl. It's just that's what WrestleMania brings with it every year. Mm-hmm. You know, every state in the union will be represented, and I don't know how many countries are coming this year. It's generally around twenty-five or thirty countries uh, travel to fans, and those countries obviously come to uh, the, the marketplace. It's a great economic boost for the Bay Area, without question, and uh, which is good. Yeah, new money's always good. Definitely. So the the Q and A is what I think is really drives the show because. You never know what you're going to be asked. You never know what what road you're going to travel. Uh, I try to segue from questions to stories and and intertwine everything, and uh, so it's a it's kind of unpredictable. But that's the not so short answer. But that's kind of the deal: humor, motivation, a little history, uh, and a lot of entertainment is the goal.
2: Jim, this is John uh, Carlo. Do you feel like this is a, a cathartic experience for you? It's kind of just you know, get your experiences, your thoughts on the business, just kind of get it off your chest and out there.
1: Yeah. Is this the real John Carlo?
2: What's that? Yes. The real John Carlo. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm kidding. You. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like the most interesting man in the world. John <laughs> yeah. Carlo. He doesn't drink beer. That's right. But he would like to. Or so. uh,
3: <laughs> He's got a nice hat.
1: Uh, yeah. It's cathartic, uh, John. In all seriousness, I, it's good to be able to share the stories, share the memories, uh, and you know, pro wrestling is not unlike anything else. There's all kinds of folklore, and did this really happen, and and uh, all these type things. So it is cathartic, and it it reconnects me with the audience. Uh, I never played the role of a wrestling announcer. I don't know what the hell that would be. Uh, I was always myself, uh, a little caffeineed up from <laughs> tonight tonight, but I was a fan, and I'm still a fan of the genre. Not embarrassed to say it. Uh, so. Uh, I, it, it reconnects me with those folks that have supported me all these years. Uh, the, and I'm always intrigued by what is on their mind because they're very – wrestling fans are very outspoken because they finally get into an arena, at, like at my show at the Rock Bar, where no one's going to criticize them for uh, asking a, a dumb question because there are no dumb questions. Uh, they're, they're, they're amongst their people, and they're in friendly confines. So uh, that's the uh, – that's kind of how I look at it, and I, they're treated with respect. And again, we try to find the humor and the lightheartedness and things. I don't want people leaving there, you know, depressed. I want them to have fun and get some laughs and, and see a different side of me than they've seen on all these years on television, where I was always the straight man to so the color guys' humor and sizzle. I kind of provide the stake in that regard and that, in that shared experience. So, uh, yeah, it's very cathartic and fun. I, I'm really. I was reluctant to start doing these shows, but I'm really glad that we uh, have been doing them now for about three years.
3: Hey, Jim, this is Dan Reichert. Uh, So, you know, about 15 years ago when Mick Foley put out his first book, that was a huge success. And then all of a sudden, every wrestler basically has a book. And then fast forward to the podcast world. You and Steve Austin and Colt Cabana, you guys were among the first to start doing podcasts. And now it seems like everyone's got a podcast podcast. Have you seen – do you think that's going to happen with these one-man shows? Because right now it seems to mostly be you and Mick. Uh, Have you seen other guys kind of looking to get into that?
1: Wouldn't surprise me a bit. Would not surprise me a bit uh, whatsoever. Uh, Because, you know, you you can say – wrestlers are no different than NFL players or NBA players or anybody else. You can tell them, hey, this is not going to last forever. You're not going to make these great big checks for the rest of your life, you know. Uh, you're only an injury, uh, one major injury away from, from your career being cut short. So, save your money, spend less than you earn, and pay Uncle Sam. Well, unfortunately, a lot of those guys didn't, uh, and but they are all. A lot of them have good gifts of gab, and they've got stories about their career. The the thing about my shows is that I will talk about my journey as a fan, getting into wrestling, and then thinking it was going to be a summer job and I'll go back to college in the fall and finish my degree and it, 40 years later I'm still the registrar is still waiting. I ain't <laughs> seen OJR yet. He ain't re enrolled. But a lot of those guys don't have a you know, they don't have they don't have a lot of options. They don't have a way they don't have a way of maintaining that lifestyle and I was very fortunate to uh, work for WWE when the company went from private to public and I was a corporate officer so The stock market, which I have no clue about, I know how it works, but I'm not a stock market guy. Uh, the stock that we got from uh, the the IPO and everything really set a lot of us up. I'm just being honest. And, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I know I grew up on a 160 acre farm in Oklahoma, uh, only child, uh, and didn't have, didn't have a lot, didn't even have an indoor bathroom until I was in the fourth grade, which is a fact. Uh, so I know what it's like being broke. I know what it's like being bankrupt. And I didn't like it, so I, we saved. And so I, I have options, uh, which a lot of guys don't. So to the, the evasive way of answering your question, absolutely, hell yeah. They're, if they can steal your idea or borrow it or put it in their own words, they're going to go out and do it. So, and I have more power to them. You know, If they can go out and earn a living for their family and help support their uh, college tuition for their kids, you know, have at it.
2: With the uh, the Q&A and and interacting with fans being a big part of your show, what would you say, uh, after doing a couple of these shows, is is the greatest disconnect or misconception fans have about the business?
1: Oh, I think that uh, that's a very good question. And uh, it's probably the fact that they don't want to turn on their favorites. So when their favorites aren't doing well, they generally blame the promotion. Uh, and there is a shared responsibility for any performer to, uh, to rise to the occasion with the material that they're presented and go out and execute. Uh, it's no different than uh, your 49ers out there. They still, they're going to play a season this year, right? Yeah. They're, going lose players. <laughs> they're, they're still going to play. I know uh, Harbaugh's in Ann Arbor and everybody's retiring or whatever. You know, you know. I saw today where Michael Crabtree was visiting the Dolphins. What the hell happened there? You know, so point being is that sometimes it's the player making decisions, or sometimes it's the performer not performing. And so how come my favorite wrestler A is not on the main event at WrestleMania? Well, it may be because they have a, they have a different role for him. People got to remember, these guys are getting booked, and I call it casting.
4: And uh, so they're yeah.
1: being cast in different roles, and sometimes you're not uh, your name's not going to be above the title like a movie star. It's going to be and featuring and also starring or whatever. So I think the misconception is is that the promotion controls everything, and none of the responsibility should go on to their favorite their their favorite wrestler because he or she may have fumbled, or maybe there's something behind the scenes that the general public isn't aware of that has uh, caused a breach in trust with that talent. Uh, so maybe the talent's kind of trying to play their way out of uh, uh, the doghouse, shall we say.
0: Does, does it seem like that this is a, a more recent phenomenon where you have fans blaming the the promotion? It, it feels like, you know, I mean, you know, it, it's very different than it was even in, in the 90s when, you know, you yep. started seeing the internet dirt sheets and that sort of stuff. But it just seems like these days there's so much visibility into what's going on behind the curtain but no one really quite knows how it 's working. They just assume that right. well Vince McMahon is behind all this, and you know, obviously right. we need yeah. to blame him and, and Vince vilify McMahon
1: him is and, always positioned as the evil dictator who controls every uh, every waking moment and uh, of the wrestlers and and uh, and he does and he, and he look he is the boss he 's Jerry jones he 's he was uh, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine last night about David Stern
4: mm-hmm. and the
1: NBA, and they say the NBA office now is a much happier place because David Stern has uh, uh, made all of his millions and millions and done a phenomenal job building the NBA back to a big-time brand, uh, but he was a tyrant in the eyes of some. I don't know. I've never met him.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: I know he's brilliant. McMahon is a uh, is like uh, David Stern. It's his league, and he's built it, and he's he's had to rebuild it before. Uh, so you know he's the perception of him sometimes is a little bit misguided, but nonetheless, I think social media has been hugely impactful to uh, affecting the business because you have so many performers i e wrestlers on on Twitter, for example uh, you know I, I went on Twitter screaming and kicking, and now I got almost a million one point three million followers, mm-hmm. and I got to where I liked it, and I market my my condiment line. And I didn't say condom, condom <laughs> barbecue sauce, mustard, ketchup, and seasoning, uh, with www.shop.com, and so I use it social media as a business tool, and also in ways to promote my show, like in San Diego or in San Jose. Uh, so, but I, the fans have access to to all these stars, and I don't include myself in that uh, that illustration. Mm-hmm. But you can go see us on on Twitter, and you can you know until you piss them off and they block you you're there you're on their you're on their screen so it's a i think social media's had a big impact on that stuff
0: yeah do, do you feel that the that the shows that the television has generally become more reactive to what's happening on social media
1: you know i think that social media sometimes uh it's interesting uh to me there's a million ways uh to uh uh to evaluate or get audience feedback,
4: mm-hmm.
1: you know, minute-by-minute ratings, uh, ticket sales, merchandise sales, subscriptions to the WWE Network, for example. There's a million ways to, g- to gauge how good or popular someone is or how this storyline is working or how the product in general is being perceived. Uh, but I think sometimes, too, if you have the pr- a promotion that has a long-term plan and, and, and come hell or high water, they're not going to change that plan. Uh, sometimes it works in reverse it 's like okay we hear you, but this is the way we think this is going to work the best and and and, and we 're going to steer the course so I think sometimes if you get a guy with a strong personality uh, like uh, McMahon is uh, that he has you know a uh, unique vision for that genre, mm-hmm. and I think he says, "Hey, look, I think I know my brand better than anybody else, and i 'm going to we 're going to continue down this road." But they certainly listen, but they just don't always react. And I and I, can't, I understand that because, you know, I get people all the time telling me, "When are you going to make a new barbecue sauce? When are you going to add a new flavor? When are you going to do a hot sauce?" And right. I would be like Kraft. I, what are you going to make? They, somebody asked me the other day if I was going to start making mayonnaise. Mayonnaise? What? Why won't mayonnaise? <laughs> I make mustard because it's healthy. Uh, so you know, you can't follow everybody's wishes. And I think sometimes it works in reverse. I really do.
4: For
0: sure. Yeah, definitely. It, it's it's one of those things that there was the um the recent uh WWE network interview with uh uh Steve Austin talking to Triple H. And uh uh-huh. with the thing that jumped out at me there was uh that realization, you know, that kind of comparing it back to uh, you know, the late nineties, two thousands, that kind of attitude era and 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 where the way things are now, there was that admission of like, well, you know, back then demographically WWE was pursuing like a, a relatively narrow thing, you know, the 18 to 34, 18, to 24 males. And now right. they're attempting to skew much wider, go, go much wider than that. Do you feel they that are. that's, I mean, like, I, I feel like, you know, as someone who liked that period, uh, that, that attitude area period. And sometimes I feel a little left out in the cold by, by some of the directional changes. Like some of it's for me, some of it's not, do you think that that's a winning strategy for them to try to be all things to all people?
1: You know, it's like uh, they're like the shopping mall of, of pro wrestling. They have they're trying to have all these little pockets for everybody. You got uh, Toys R Us and mm-hmm. Kids R Us, and you got a, you got uh, you know, uh, uh, oh god, the lingerie stores and this, that, and the other. It's uh, it's hard to be all things to and, and to be overtly mass appeal. And not and not inadvertently, obviously, exclude people like your example uh, there. When I I uh, we had a great roster at that time, and mm-hmm. really, uh, and I was very fortunate because I was in charge of that roster, and I was hiring the guys, and my team was scouting, and and we were negotiating and training and all this stuff, and we got lucky on some some big time stars that came in and, and played very very well and, and performed very very well, uh, and so. But they're having the business in general is kind of going through a transitional period because, whereas you know back in the day, where San Francisco was a very viable wrestling territory for mm-hmm. years, uh, you know they're on channel what KTV KTVU KTVU maybe, or, channel two yeah uh, channel two right yep they were on channel two when it was a when it was an independent station and they got massive ratings and once a month they would run the cow palace and do gangbuster business with guys like Ray Stevens and Pat Patterson and a host of others that would travel through Roy Shire's territory. Mm -hmm. And all those guys had the chance to really perform uh, on a regular basis, refine their game uh, and their skill sets. And then they could go to another area. They could go up to Portland and work there for a year in that that region. They could come out to Oklahoma and work Oklahoma and Louisiana and and that part of the world. Uh, Until you finally got to the big money territories – Uh, San Francisco was a big-money territory, by the way, Uh, but like Atlanta, Charlotte, Tampa, New York, all big-money places. But you had a place to train off-Broadway, and I equate it because it's coming up next month, to the NFL draft, which has become a television series, right? a three-night television extravaganza. What if there was no more college football? How would that affect the National Football League? Mm -hmm. It's scary to think. It's like the the March Madness is a all it is, is March Madness is a three week television show, i.e. job interview for the NBA draft. A
0: pageant, practically, yeah.
1: Yeah, it is a beauty pageant. Who's got the nice shot? Who plays a little defense? Whatever. And I have always contended that uh, I am I'm not, and I know you can get all kinds of arguments, debates about free enterprise and stuff. Well, by God, if they can serve the country at eighteen, they should be able to go play basketball. Okay, I, I'm, I'm you're losing me somewhere along that equation. <laughs> all right, 19- or 20-year-olds aren't ready to be millionaires. And, and the tragedies that, they, that ensue financially, socially, baby mama. I mean, my God, I was watching the night. Vander Holyfield has 11 children with eight different women.
0: Right, yeah.
1: You know, uh, you know Vander's got all this. He's even got a barbecue sauce out. I think he should be <laughs> making condoms. <laughs> Vander Holyfield condoms, the real deal.
0: Yeah, leave the real-deal condoms to him. You've got the condiments covered. You know, I think there's a synergy there.
1: I think there may be a partnership, but who knows? <laughs> but the point is is that all those territories, like Frisco, uh, went out of business. They dried up. Mm-hmm. So the feeder system to the big territories that were on national TV, like in Atlanta, on TBS, yeah. or yeah. like in New York, or WWE, or like on USA Network, there's no more feeder system. They had to create their own theater system, and I did that for WWE in the mid-'90s, and now they have one major facility. It's state-of-the-art. It's a, piece of, it's a beautiful place, a palace in Orlando. But they train all their guys there. But here's the key, key thing is this. You don't learn as much in a controlled environment as you do working in front of a live audience five or six or seven nights a week and making those car trips with all those veterans who are sharing their knowledge with you over a a beer uh, while the the young guy's driving a car and you're driving from town to town. It's a whole different dynamic, and it's affected the performance level and the skill set of the guys that we all see on television today.
3: Do you think that's part of the reason that there's been this disconnect where you see these stars that are down there in Florida? You know, you've seen uh, Bo Dallas and the Ascension, Adam Rose, and Emma – these characters that, you know, were, were over to some degree on NXT programming, but then when they get brought up to Raw, a lot of those characters have floundered. Do you, do you, do you chalk that up to that, that thing of them not being on tour and doing the indie scene?
1: No, I, I, well, it's part of it, yes. The other part is they're cast in one role, in one school of thought, one philosophy in NXT, but when they get to the upper level, oftentimes, and they make the main roster of WWE, they're just so damn happy to be there that they they try to assume any role that they're given. And sometimes the roles that they're given are sometimes the, the traits that made them successful or popular uh, or the very reason that they got called up uh, are eliminated. So they're recast into a different presentation. And I think that uh, there that's a... I don't know if it's a communication issue. I don't know if it's a philosophical issue. But there's problems there. Uh, there's there's issues there. Now they they, they weren't just the opposite with a shield. Those three guys weren't weren't partners. They weren't they weren't they had no synergy. They were not, they all had their own own uh, individual agenda when they were in the developmental area.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Someone had a great idea to put the three of them together and form a faction, and they did, and it worked. And and what you always want out of a wrestling faction. It's a spin-off effect. You want to have guys uh, spit out of that. It's like having a sitcom with an ensemble cast. You want maybe one or two. If you get lucky, they they pop out and uh, they can do their own show. So uh, I just think it's a matter of casting and understanding. The writing staff, I think, sometimes in in Stanford may not be uh, as keenly aware personally and professionally of the kids that are in Florida Mm -hmm. as the guys in Florida are. If that makes any sense. So sometimes writing for them, creating for them, writing their promos, things of that nature, uh, sometimes is, uh, is, has a, is can be flawed. It's the human element.
3: You mentioned your time in talent relations, and you hear so much talk about being like the guy or the face of the company in the way that Austin or Rock or Cena or Hogan uh, were. It, was there anybody during your time in talent relations that you were just absolutely certain had everything it took to be the guy and floundered for one reason or another? And why was that?
1: No, I I uh I don't know if it's just my uh my my age or my 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 background, uh I I suppress uh negativity a lot. And I, for better or for worse, self admittedly. <laughs> I should be on Dr. Phil right now.
0: Uh, <laughs> let it all out. Let's let's, let's get yeah, to the bottom of this. Let it all out.
1: Cry you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but I, not, not, you know, not not really. I've had some overachievers without question. I've had several guys that overachieved. that got to be bigger than I thought that they would without question. But I can't think of anybody uh, that, you know, uh, that came in and just flopped. And And sometimes that's a matter of, the guy the reasons that those do occur from time to time are they're miscast. Uh, they quit, they, they think they made it to that upper level. So they're not putting out the effort that they should, uh, and, or they're not learning. They're not continuing the learning curve. So, you know, I, uh, I, 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 I know that Mick Foley probably was the, was the most overachieving talent that I hired because he tried to get work there three different times and got turned down. And I, Vince McMahon told me, he "said I'm going to let you hire Foley because I want you to know what it's like to get your heart broken." Because <laughs> so he didn't think Mick would make it, he said, "You're you're too close to the talent." But I looked at him like a coach or a guy going out recruiting. I wanted I wanted him to like me. I wanted to like him, but I wanted him to be in the locker room because he was no, he was not a alcohol guy or drug guy, or he was never late, and he worked hard, and his effort was amazing, and he would take the time to mentor younger guys. So I was looking at it from an athletic standpoint and the mentoring thing, and uh, so we, we he let me hire Mick was one of my first hires as a vice president of talent relations and obviously as you mentioned he's a New York Times best selling author uh, multiple times and was a big star for us and, and made a great living and uh, was a you know was a, it's a it's a great success story because by God he didn't have the body and he didn't he didn't, he wasn't an amazing athlete but he had he had great psychology and he had amazing passion and. uh... Generally, that uh, if you have psychology for your business and you get the passion for it, it's really hard to keep somebody from being successful.
2: Do you think the, you know, in terms of seeing the, the talent that's coming in, do you think that the UFC has disrupted sort of the, the flow of talent into WWE? Because years ago we were seeing, you know, collegiate and amateur athletes like Kurt Angle and, and obviously Brock Lesnar and even, you know, Shelton Benjamin coming into WWE. But it seems like that pool has dried up a little bit. Are those guys just going straight into MMA and, and trying their hand at that versus going to WWE? I mean, how much of a factor has that been? Mm-hmm.
1: There'll be, there is a factor. Is it a big difference maker? Is it is it a game changer? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think it's a game changer. Uh, but I do think it's a factor. Uh, when, I, when we were recruiting Brock Lesnar, we started his junior year college at University of Minnesota. And my number one recruiter was uh, roommates with so Brock's college wrestling coach. So we had a little in there. Mm. Uh, and, but Brock at that time had no desire to... Uh, UFC was not uh, as refined as it is now. Uh, It was kind of, it was a band in a lot of states, you know, and they had a lot of issues with athletic commissions, and you know, like John uh, McCain said, it was human cockfighting and things of that nature. Uh, So, Lesnar just wanted to make money, and uh, we facilitated that for him. Could have hired him after his junior year, but we promised his coach we wouldn't, and I told him that if he win the national championship next year, I could give you a bigger contract, so he that motivated him. I don't know if he ever went to class, but I know he wrestled. <laughs> and he won a national title, and he ended up making a ton of money. So, uh, But I, you're going to lose some guys. You're going to lose some, some guys. But because the pro wrestling is still, whether they want to admit it or not, is a, is a look and size business, I don't agree with the philosophy, but most will tell you size is king in one form or another. The USC, for example, will offer guys that are small a chance to go make a lot of money. And a 145- or 150-pound guy is not going to make that kind of money in pro wrestling. Very, very seldom. It happens, has happened, probably will happen, but it's not, it's not the norm. So uh, I think that it is a factor, not a major one, as some people think. I, when WWE was doing traditional pay-per-view, and, and uh, they would have their pay-per-views on Sunday, and USC would have their pay-per-views on Saturday, you know, there's only so much disposable income to go around. And there's where the competition came into play. Is what do I buy? Do I buy the USC, or do I buy WWE? And I think there's where the biggest competition was. So, but I don't. Some guys when they leave amateur wrestling are so tired of making weight, so tired of the, of the pain and agony and blues going through amateur wrestling, that uh, they don't want to get. They don't want to reinvest in USC because it just ratchets it up a notch. So they're tired of that. They've been wrestling. In that world and that environment, since they were kids, little kids, and they get burned out, and so they want to go entertain people. So, and, the, and pro wrestling gives them that opportunity. So, uh, it's a good question. I just I don't think it's as big an issue as some would perceive. I think it's a it comes back to the disposal income uh, factor. I would say the Disney on Ice, the ice capades, the circus, other things that you can take your kids to. Because as you guys alluded to earlier, they want to be mass appeal WWE. They want to they want the kids to become fans early and, and remain fans for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, in theory, that's not a bad philosophy.
2: As, as a product, uh, NXT almost seems to offer a more viable road for a lot of these amateur guys who are a little bit smaller. And with that being said, NXT as a brand seems to be separating itself a little bit more. You know, they're starting to take that show on the road. Uh, do you foresee NXT maybe even becoming its own just full-on separate brand? brand that's not that doesn't feed into the main roster, but rather it's just its own separate thing?
1: I, 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 I don't right now, and I might uh, want to revise re- review that question a year from now. Uh, I may want to pull an Ed Hockley and say, <laughs> upon further review, uh, the down will be replayed and the question will be re-answered. I still think that uh, they will uh, remain to be the feeder system. Because I think that that brand is gaining in such popularity. You know, they so they added a show late uh, in uh, San Jose. Yep. NXT, and they sold it out in like a couple hours. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's it. Sticks pretty damn good. It's a good deal. Uh, but I think that if the brand continues to grow, for me, it gives uh, the WWE Network that the world knows you can subscribe for nine ninety nine or it is. <laughs> I think it's 999 at least. Not nine ninety five. Nine ninety nine. Uh, I think it gives them a great uh it's like a nice brand to have, you know, it's it's like when Fox got uh football. Right. You know, yeah. uh, I, I think it's 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 a viable brand that it could help build their network. So I see it being a network staple uh and I, but I do see the fact that they're traveling and they're taking these kids on the road you know, a poor traveler makes a bad pro wrestler. You can't hit a wake-up call. You can't make a flight on time. You you can't turn your... You know, you don't know how to rent a car. Uh, you know, all these things that we take for granted, uh, you know, you got to learn to travel. And so I think them going on the road and, and, and performing in front of different audiences, big or small, is really, really good for their... Uh, uh, to accelerate their learning curve to make it to Raw or SmackDown. So... I don't, I don't see it being a separate entity in, a, in that sense, but I see it being a, a, a real viable entity for the network, and I still think that they will tour when it's uh, uh, cost effective and when you're doing when you're coming to WrestleMania and, you need, and the talent's all going to be utilized one way or the other in some form at access or whatever, uh, it makes all the sense in the world to let the world see these kids uh, do their thing in, mm-hmm. uh, in that live event environment.
0: yeah. Uh- you talk a lot about the the backstage mentality. You talk about, like you know, like uh, you know, mentoring the younger talent. You talk about the idea of like you know, treating it like a coach and treating it like a team. But at the same time, I feel like you know, a lot of the word that gets out is is that maybe it's a little paranoid back there that everyone's kind of worried about their spot, worried about their payday. You know, as in, independent yeah. contractors, like is is it. That, that sounds, sounds like a really difficult push and pull. And I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that a little bit. Is, you know, like, is it truly a cast? Is it truly a team? Or is it a group of individuals that are all trying to get as much as they possibly can while they can?
1: Uh, I, I think it's a little bit of everything you said. I'll, I'll, I can speak to my time there. We, we've, I found out that pro wrestlers would, would rather be treated like athletes than entertainers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, I simple illustration. The guys that worked on my roster, our roster when I was there, uh, they they uh, use locker rooms. These guys now you'll hear them talk, and I'm not around them much at all. Mm-hmm. But they, they they have dressing rooms. It may sound like it's the trivial point, but if you think about it, pull a little, peel the onion back, you you, you can see exactly where I'm going. Definitely, yeah. They, they, they're leaning toward that dressing room entertainer mentality as opposed to leaning toward that locker room uh, jocular athlete mentality. Well, that's, uh, at some point I that sounds like have, it, longer, yeah. have better success longer term mm-hmm. with the athletic uh, mindset because they're able to uh, overcome bumps and bruises. Uh, they overcome not being on the first team but being on the second team but wanting to work hard to get to the starting lineup, that type thing. I can't speak to how they are now, but I can say that uh, one illustration. I I gave, I I I had a bit part in a movie that comes out April 3rd called What Now? It's a comedy. Mm -hmm. It's about social dating, and I play the boss, evil, mean, nasty Jr. boss (laughs) of uh, one of the central characters. And uh, we go to the premiere last Tuesday in Los Angeles. After the premiere, they have a little post screening party, and all the actors were there. And it was a low-budget film, and, and everybody worked for scale. Uh, most everybody worked for scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, some didn't, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, <laughs> oh, I hear, I, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, I, I, I uh, had a great experience. It's a funny damn movie, really funny, very contemporary. But at the after party, guess what everybody was talking about? Their next gig and sure. where it was going to come from. Yeah, And the fact that they were, they were networking that night, But they had to; they couldn't stay out too late because they had to go to their job the next morning, at Starbucks, or at uh, uh, you know waiting uh, waiting tables here or there, whatever it was. Uh, Paranoia, in other words, they were uneasy. They were paranoid. Next gig, when's it going to be? They're insecure, and it was rampant. And the same thing uh, happens, I think, in pro sports, and I think it happens uh, in in wrestling for sure as well. There is just that. a paranoia, and insecurity that goes with the job, and uh, I don't know that you can ever in sports or entertainment uh, get or, get around that. I've talked to too many NFL guys, and they'll share the same thing. I talked to USC guys, and I got some UFC guys. Got so many trained there in the Bay Area and San Jose and around. They come to my show. Yeah. Well, they all know they got a they got a shelf life. They know that there's a, their DNA is going to allow them to have so many fights, and then they're done. And they're all concerned about that. Do I have brain, will I have brain damage? Will I have the money to sustain myself? Will I be able to find another career in another field? What does what does uh, MMA qualify me to do in the next life? So it's I think it's kind of all through sports and entertainment, but certainly wrestling because there's only one major global company that, that if you are a pro wrestler that you can go to work for and earn a adequate or great living.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you're not there, now where are you? You're that guy trying to come up with those uh, uh, talk, these, these spoken word tours or you're, you're going to card signings or you're, you're doing whatever you got to do. That's why I always tell these kids, you should always have plan B. And I, like, I always like to hire guys that had a degree or a skill that they could fall back on. And it, it helps soothe some of the paranoia.
3: Do you think this generation of superstars is getting smarter about that? Because you're seeing a lot more guys nowadays that you know kind of stay away from alcohol and drugs, and they seem more, you know, financially uh, sound than these older guys. Uh, Do you see that as a generational change?
1: I I do to to some degree. I really do. I uh, they whereas the old school guys thought it was they were obligated to go drink beer or hit the bar or a gentleman's club, whatever. Uh, after a event as kind of a rite of passage. Is this, this is just what we do uh, that uh, the this generation is more in tune to uh, video games uh, you know skyping their kids um, that type thing and it's it 's actually refreshing. Some of the old school guys you know their the gravelly voice you know high ah, down those those goddamn kids these days you know they uh, don know what it 's like to have a cold beer after the show. That kind of deal, you know. So, well, you know, they're saving money. They're staying healthier. They're not getting DUIs, it's, uh, that type of thing. It's, you know, it's for, they're, they can get them. They do get some, I'm sure. Sure. But it's a it's, it's toned down a lot. And the other thing that's helped tone that down, and I must give WWE credit for this and the McMahon family, is that they spend millions on CTE testing, uh, heart, uh, cardio, uh, thorough testing, all the everybody, and they have random drug testing, uh, they all managed by an out of the house company in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I was talking to the guy that succeeded me there in the talent relations department. I went to a, sh- a show and I said, He said, I got to move my office because the, the drug guys are going to be here. And I said, Did you know they were coming? He said, No, we never know. They come, they show up, and, and everybody, you know, everybody's told to report and uh, provide their uh, urine. But the WWE also does blood work, which uh, one would assume would identify human growth hormone. So I really admire the fact that they've done all these things. You're still going to have a bad apple here and there, no doubt. Sure. Uh, But they've put checks and balances in place. And when the kids come in from day one, that's the culture that they are, that they experience. A lot of the old school guys that were in the tail end of their runs, when I got that job, they already had the habits, the bad habits ingrained, and they weren't changing to come hell or high water. So, uh, I think that the I think that all those young, those premature deaths that seem like they were never going to end. Yeah, I think that generation is uh, only a sad memory, and that the future for that, at least in WWE, is very very positive.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we're we're almost out of time here, but uh, just uh, to to wrap up a bit here, do you think that? Well, what what would it take for someone to come in to the wrestling business and actually form a, a legitimate challenge to the WWE? What what is? Do you think it's that that's even feasible in this day and age that a company could come along and you know get that hot, get that large, to actually pose a threat uh, to WWE?
1: Uh, well, I'll tell you. I uh, interesting question, and I. I am assuming, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that pose a threat in your term means uh, make WWE feel that if they don't get after it, they, they, that this company may put them out of business.
0: Yeah, yeah, so exactly.
1: Okay, I, I don't think that that's ever going to happen, mm-hmm. because I think they have their roots are too deep. They have so much, uh, their brand is so diverse as far as all the ancillary monies. They've got a massive head start on global television. And and they've got great name identity. It would be like you asking me, okay, what's it going to take for a football league to overtake the National NFL? Well, right. we know how many people have tried that. I <laughs> actually did commentary uh, for XFL. It's one eventful year mm-hmm. and made some nice trips to Frisco and called some games for their XFL team back in the day. The demons. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and I and I uh, I think you can. I think a company that has uh, Donald Trump-like money or money that, like a orphan network like Viacom or somebody like that, that who's bought Bellator, the MMA group, if they wanted to do wrestling and they would hire the right people, the right wrestling people, they would, let their, uh, they would be willing to invest a year of training and recruiting and getting guys without just starting off from scratch with a bunch of, well, right, where you say the audience. Now, look, we realize we're not very good right now, but if you'll just bear with us, we're really gonna, we're really gonna be good. You're really gonna be happy. You keep tuned. You, you tuned in every week. Well, we all know that's not the way the world works anymore. Yeah. You get a few weeks, and you're, and you know, you're looking forward to Robin Williams. God bless him. Mm-hmm. You know his TV show bombed the last one he did, and I love him. I saw him in concert many times, but you, and I thought when Robin Williams went on network television, this is a layup. Exactly. He's one yeah. of the most marvellously talented, brilliant uh actors comedians that i've ever seen but it didn't work and so and the network had no no conscience about saying we're done shut the door on that show so i i don't know what it would it would take a lot of money it would take really someone uh, a network would be your best bet because the network's not going to cancel uh if they're going to big investment in this in this Quasi sports entertainment franchise. Mm-hmm. They're going to know it's going to take a little while to get it built, and uh, so put the roster together, get all the all the pieces in place. That would be your only chance. But as far as putting WWE out of business, it isn't going to happen.
3: Jim, I got a quick one for you. What are your top okay. three barbecue cities in America?
1: Oh goodness, uh, <laughs> me being a—that's a. That's a uh, well, that's one of my loves. You're the I would expert. say uh, obviously uh Kansas City, yes. uh Memphis, and uh we actually have a great barbecue place here in Oklahoma. That'd be I would be uh that, that would be too much of a a, a homer. I would say <laughs> Art, Texas.
3: Okay. Do you have a surefire well, Art, number one Texas out of those? South
1: of Austin, and it is allegedly the barbecue capital of the of Texas. And uh, it's a little-known place. If anybody listening is ever in Austin uh, or they're listening and they're in, they're, they're down for south-southwest now, get in your little rental car, go to Lockhart, Texas. It's barbecue heaven. But Memphis is great. Kansas City's great. But some of the most obscure places you'll find, I found a great barbecue place from a guy that won the national barbecue cook-off in America in London. Yeah. And he, he got, a, a guy came over. Fell in love with the barbecue, and he had big money, and he went to London, to opened three stores, and they're kicking ass. And it, it was right up the street in the hotel we were staying at for four or five days uh, a few years ago. And I thought I'd seen. It was like being. I felt like Chevy Chase in vacation, where he's <laughs> trying to make it from the wrecked car back to the garage to get help. Yeah. Where you're stoning <laughs> through the desert and hallucinating. I felt like that when I saw the barbecue place in London of all places, Uh, and I was—I thought, man, this is damn near orgasmic. I got to get to this place. I got to—I got to keep walking. And I so—and I went there like you know five days in a row. And I told all the all the crew about it, and they thought I was BSing them. And I was going to take them to get get fish and chips. And if there's any fish and chip aficionados, I'm not knocking fish and chips, but the barbecue is. It's funny where you find it. It's funny where you find it, but I I love looking for it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you very much uh, for spending some time with us today.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Enjoyed it. Smart conversation, guys. I, I appreciate it. And I also appreciate the fact that uh, the business I spent 40 years in is not for everybody. And I understand that. And I don't force it on anybody. Uh, but I respect the fact that uh, you didn't come on and say, "God, you know, couldn't you find something else to do for a living for 40 years? Why did you get in wrestling? <laughs> Well, it was that, or you know, I could have stayed in my home county and grew pot, or I could have had a been Walter White and had a meth lab or something. But I kind of liked it. I had it put two wives and two daughters through college, and uh, so I, I loved it. I was a fan. That's like saying, you, did you really watch Roller Derby? Yeah, damn right, I watched yeah. Roller Derby. Heck yeah, and you damn right, I felt badly when I heard Charlie O'Connell passed away uh, because he was John Wayne on skates. So. <laughs> I appreciate your your respect and I, the, the smart questions, and I really uh, enjoyed being on with you guys, and hope we can do it again someday.
0: Yeah, great. Uh, well, we're we're looking forward to you coming out to our area here. It's uh, yep. Saturday, March twenty eighth, the the day before WrestleMania. Right. Uh, one if you guys p-
1: want to come, uh, we'll just let us know. I'll pick you up, uh, and uh, I want you know on me my guest, and uh, we have we have tickets remaining, tickets the day of the show. I I set the price at, you know, 20 bucks uh and I think that's affordable for a couple of hours of entertainment. We'll have some laughs, we'll tell some good stories. Rock Bar Theater. I think it used to be a casino over there in San Jose.
0: Yeah, it might, it uh, might have been. There there's a handful of casinos just around now, yeah.
1: Yeah, but it's got free parking, nice deal. Huh. Uh and so uh, it's, a, it's a it'll be fun. It's right be it's it's going to give everybody that comes time to come to my show and then still get to the W.W. Hall of Fame uh, ceremony uh, uh, which is later in the afternoon there in uh, San Jose and I'm remiss that it doesn't look like uh, the great Ray Stevens is going to be inducted in this class and I thought that would have been a a layup because within the wrestling fraternity he's considered one of the absolute without question bar none greatest in-ring performers of all time and uh, ironically uh, he was not six feet tall he was he, what, you did not have to be a giant to be a great performer. He just had it. Mm-hmm. could not turn your eyes away from him, and he had it. And I, uh, I wish he was going to be inducted. And in. Pat Patterson would be his inductor, but uh, wasn't in the cards this time.
0: Yeah, it was a little surprising not to see, you know, the the kind of the, the nod to the locals on that one for sure.
1: I agree. I agree. Yeah. But I'm going to nod to him on my show. I guarantee. You. I, I think he's. I met him in sitting at a bar, believe it or not, with that gravelly voice, smoking a. Marlboro or something, and drinking something was very clear. <laughs> I suspect it was vodka in the rocks, but uh, but needless to say, he was a classic storyteller and uh, just a all around, you know, it's amazing. He was he was the guy. Mm-hmm. At one time, I was told that, that Charlie O'Connell, Ray Stevens, and Willie Mays were the three most popular athletes in the Bay Area.
0: Sure, I, I definitely not
1: believe a that. 40, not a 49er in sight.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, that's for. For that period of time, it makes a lot of sense that the 49ers would not be uh, on that list <laughs> for sure. Uh, well, thank. If people want to uh, want more information on tickets, they can go to TicketWeb dot com uh, and right. look for Ringside: An Afternoon with Jim Ross. Uh, Jim Ross, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much again for your time, sir.
1: Fellas, thank you so much. And I, if you, when you get ready to uh, get this out there in the world, uh, and you tag me in on your tweets, I'll be sure and. Throw it out there to my group, and, uh, and we will uh, let them enjoy your questions and your, your conversation as much as I have.
0: All right, terrific. Well, uh, thanks, and, and hope you have a great day. Thanks a lot for your time.
1: Thanks, guys. Right. I will. Thank right. you.